Welcome to the SCMS Classical Conversation podcast, taped live at the Seattle Chamber Music Society's 2020 Winter Festival. I'm Dave Beck. I hope you enjoy these in-depth conversations with festival musicians. You can find more episodes at seattlechambermusic.org and at king.org and most podcasting platforms. Please rate and review us wherever you listen. The Ennis Quartet performed half of Beethoven's string quartets at the 2020 SCMS Winter Festival. We begin part two of our conversation with thoughts on how Beethoven shaped tiny building blocks of sound into impressive examples of musical architecture. There is a certain economy in the first movement of that quartet. Um, I was talking to someone last night after our concert about how these pieces are just to listen to. They're so wonderful, and uh, they give so much joy and so much pleasure, but they are also, and this is so often the case with Beethoven, they are, from a compositional standpoint, just from a technical standpoint, they are so immensely impressive. They're so well written. Uh, Every instrument truly has uh, equal opportunities to shine and contribute. Uh, The textures can be so clear or so thick. And the the more you get to know them, the more you, you just sort of tip your cap. I mean, even if the music sounded bad, they would still be great masterpieces just because they're written so well. Um, and I think with this first quartet, you know, he, the Opus 18 quartets, this was not, he didn't publish them. He didn't number them in the order that he wrote them. Um, so he put a great deal of thought into how they would be numbered from one to six. And well, we didn't hear the very opening of the of the piece, but it's just four players in unison playing a very simple motive, and there's quite a bit of emptiness and space in the music, and it is uh, a very unassuming opening. It's it's bold yet very unassuming for something that is going to end up being so incredibly uh, just. Uh, earth-shattering hmm. in terms of the uh, development of the string quartet. Uh, yeah, the, the the Opus 18 number one I mean, is, uh, well, we just played it last night, so it's very, very fresh in our minds. It really is a, an incredibly impressive piece with the range it covers emotionally as well. There is there's such lightness and delicacy and sparkle. Um, there is such incredible depth of feeling to the second movement. There is such uh, used the term before, but just compositional virtuosity in the third and fourth movements. It's, it really has a bit of everything. And I think Beethoven was unquestionably a very proud person. And I think when he chose to publish pieces, particularly his first examples in each given form, I think it was very much his idea to present a piece that was not just a great piece of music, but that was greater than anything that had come before. Mm. I think he had that sort of confidence in his abilities. And, uh, well, good for him. (laughs) (laughs) I just, um, with Richard mentioning, um, listening to the Philadelphia Quartet growing up, and I I think of uh, a great coach of mine, um, Irv Eisenberg, who was the the second violinist. Uh, I don't know if you ever got to know him, Amy, but... um, um, 
Alan spoke at his memorial and said, you know, it, uh, that Irv was very much the heart and soul of the, the sound of the quartet in terms of his position as, as, the, as the second violinist. Um, what, what is unique about playing that role in, in Beethoven or maybe second violin in general in terms of, um, of, of, of the support you provide, the role that you play? What, what sort of stands out for you? Well, it's, it's my hope that I can kind of be the glue that connects all the voices together. Um, because the second violin role is, you have to support what's happening over in the first violin. Um, oftentimes, just in simply playing a lower octave and, and trying to give the support and the intonation and all of that. But I, I feel like the... Um, like I'm able to help control a lot of the colors and the characters that are happening. Um, obviously, everyone's feeling the what's happening musically, but I can I can help with my sound um, whether I have to go with the with the lower end of the ensemble um, or whether it needs to have more joy in the in the accompaniment figure um, and that type of thing. So mm. I've over the years of us playing together, I've I've really grown to love this role very much because it wasn't something that I growing up I was oftentimes the first violinist right um, so it's it's been something that actually I feel like I've found something that um, really suits me as hmm. I because I like to be kind of the the supporter and um, and and I there won't be that many people that I'll find in my life that I would actually want to to play second fiddle too, so. <laughs> um, but but it's 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 a huge honor for me to yeah. get to play with these guys. Richard, we should also oh, mention that it's a very important role. Amy's uh, role in the group is that when we're on the road, she's the one that has all the snacks in her purse. <laughs> so yes, you know, I have the largest yeah. handbag, and yeah, I do like to carry great food mama, around. So she she takes care of all of us. Yeah. <laughs> Richard, from the perspective of viola, how are these, uh, any one of these quartets special to you? Oh, gosh. Um, fun fact, apparently <laughs> none of the quartets, if you're to be brutally honest, go above third position. You could play all of the, 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 the parts. I think, yeah, there's no, nothing incredibly high. And I remember once talk, talking to Ida Levin, uh, telling her that, and she's like, "Well, would you? <laughs> I mean, would you not play in?" Viola has more than three positions. <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's on or off. Um, uh, sorry. So James can say this since he plays the viola. For I can say this because I play the viola. <laughs> um, uh, I always feel like with with Beethoven, you know, he could be in. You know, what was the famous quote like when Schuponzig was complaining about something incredibly difficult, and he's like, "Do you care?" Uh, do you think I care about your wretched fiddle when the spirit moves me? Wow, so yeah. I feel like with the viola, because he played the viola, actually, that was one of his first jobs in, in Bonn, I think, mm. as, as a court violist. And um, and um, his, I don't want to call them contentious relationships with the violin and the cello, um, writing these things have been just incredibly impossible and incredibly challenging. I find, find with the viola writing, actually, it's maybe he sympathized with the viola, maybe he realized what he had hmm. to work with at the time. I don't quite know of that first quartet he had. 
for the Opus 59s with Chapanzig leading, maybe the violist. I don't quite understand, but all of the viola writing is particularly, it, 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 it works. Yeah. And we certainly want to get the cellist perspective, uh, Ed. Yeah, it's interesting. In um, a lot of the music that came before Beethoven and after Beethoven, um, I find the cello's role in a quartet to really be an important baseline, an anchor, um, a sound into which the other voices fit. And that certainly is the case at times in this music, but I also find in the Beethoven quartets, just because of the intricacy of his writing and his counterpoint, that four of us have to move more like a school of fish rather than having the <laughs> cello, you know, on one side, you know, kind of for the others to play off of. So um, that's that's a really interesting thing. Um, there is um, in all string quartet playing as a cellist there's a lot of following and then there's the occasional leading that goes on and I feel that those roles shift uh, much more quickly in this body of work than say in in the music of Haydn or Mozart right. or the music that followed Brahms Schumann Tchaikovsky mm -hmm. um, so it's yeah it, it, Beethoven quartets are unique in that way and of course you know the um, the cello will all of a sudden come out of being the lowest voice in the four part chorale structure um, and have some um, glorious melody or incredibly technically difficult um, mm -hmm. thing to play. I think um, Beethoven wasn't as charitable um, to the cellist as uh, perhaps he was to the violist in some of this writing, uh, especially those those late quartets. There's always a moment um, in, in each one of those late quartets where all of a sudden you turn the page and you think, oh my goodness, this is <laughs> up there in the stratosphere. I uh, want to survey one of the middle period in your concert uh, tonight, I think. Uh, the harp is, uh, this, is this evening. So let's um, get just a taste of this Opus 74 string quartet by Beethoven, nicknamed the harp.
So as we were talking just a moment ago about different colors and, and sound possibilities, I mean, how is Beethoven working um, really through, through the entire cycle to, to create a, this idea of new textures and sounds and ways to use four string instruments together that really um, you know, fascinates you or represents this kind of leap forward? James, you want to take a crack at that one? Um, it's a hard question. Uh, I think that, you know, that, that uh, excerpt that we just heard, that uh, being from his so-called middle period, I think for many people, um, these middle quartets, the Opus 59s, Opus 74, um, I think that th that's quite often the the musical world that many people think of first when it comes to Beethoven because um, so many of his most famous pieces are from that era. And there is a, there's a type of richness of texture um, and a sort of built-in virtuosity, I suppose, that that is what we associate so much with, with Beethoven. Um, you know, the Opus 18 quartets, the early quartets, they, uh, they owe a very strong debt to Haydn and Mozart. Um, and they, of course, are, they could only have been by Beethoven. They don't sound like Haydn. They don't sound like Mozart. But they are of that world, I suppose you could say, um, just sort of straining at the edges. <laughs> Whereas when you get to that middle period... Um, you know, I, I think that sometimes uh, people get people get obsessed with sort of ranking things and ranking people. And now, with this being the big Beethoven anniversary year, you you, you hear all sorts of uh, arguments and opinions about you know Beethoven being the the best. You know, which is a, such a, a silly uh, way of looking at anything. Um, but I, I bring this up because I think one can look at music you can never rank composers because i mean i've got a list longer than my arm of composers that that i i admire on the very highest level that do different things for me but i do think you can kind of make an argument that our western music does have a sort of focal point to it in that when you get to sort of middle Beethoven, you'd get a little bit of a sense that everything that came before it leads up to it and everything that happened afterwards was as a result of it. Um, it's that important mm. in terms of the way that it shaped, that it, in the way that it in, uh, absorbed everything that came before and in a way that it influenced everything that came after. Mm. Um, so these middle quartets... Um, I think a, probably if you were to crunch the numbers, I think that they are probably the ones that are played the most often, that are that are perhaps the most um, iconic in uh, in the sense of if if you were to poll an average concert goer and say, "Do you know any Beethoven quartets?" They would say, "Yeah, I know fifty nine three probably." <laughs> um, and there is uh, uh, just a really, 
one feels in a way that with these these middle quartets he had to do something different with his later quartets because he went as far as one could go with instrumental virtuosity uh, and with traditional forms uh, I mean these are big big pieces they're straining at the edges on in every every way so in a way it is the the culmination of an era and the launching point of the future mm-hmm. yeah. I loved listening in that 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 was the Guarneri quartet in that last um, I think I think Richard was right on that um, and and the way that they have this non-verbato passage just the just really pure sound and that kind of choral like passage there for a moment um how do you kind of take us inside one of your rehearsals and um how do you how do you make decisions like that this this passage is going to be played without uh vibrato um how much time do you have to really you know talk about um you know character and color especially when you're when you're getting through so much material um and, and, and excuse me for this. This question is sort of wandering all over the place. But I'm also thinking about how do you do you play through large swaths of things, or do you just you know come in to a, you know a late rehearsal and and say we're just going to do this passage and polish it? Or t- tell me a little bit about your um, your rehearsal and how how those unfold. Um, Amy, you want to start with with that one? It probably depends on how we're feeling that particular day or if we (laughs) ate enough food or got enough sleep. Um, Generally, we, well, after we've talked for a while and laughed a lot, um, we'll start playing and we'll, we try to take it in large chunks. You got, you have to play it to experience it to, and yes, little mistakes will happen and, um, and you make your mental notes of, of things that you want to, to, talk about or fix um but then we'll generally after maybe let's say we do one one playthrough of the movement then we'll we'll either decide well that was let's move on especially in the case of this week when we have so much music to get through um or we'll go back and we'll play through it again and that's when we'll we'll stop or we'll say say something to each other i remember one place in particular i it jumped out at me that i noticed our vibratos weren't matching and so then i'll just I'll bring it up as a comment. Um, generally, things happen so quickly at the time um, when we're playing because we're so sensitive to each other. Um, even if someone does a bow change um, that is different than what maybe we did at a previous rehearsal, we, we're so sensitive um, to what's happening that that will make changes just in real time um, and then maybe discuss it later or maybe just we just trust each other that we know what's going to happen um, come performance time. But I don't know. That's like a basic mm-hmm. rehearsal. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot of laughing that takes place. And then we'll dive into something so serious that it's, it's – it's, but it's the way, you know, in life you have to um, – have lightness and when you're playing especially something so serious oftentimes it it, Mm. we i need the relief and so anyway that's a little glimpse into how our rehearsals are thanks for listening to this episode of the classical conversation podcast this podcast is a co-production of seattle chamber music society and king fm bill levy is our recording engineer the show is produced by nikhil sarma and co-produced by daisha clay 
To learn more, go to seattlechambermusic.org or to king.org.